Uh, you know, I love this time of the year. Um, we have an opportunity to break from our study in the book of Philippians to some uh, of the things surrounding the Advent, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and all that that means that are here today. You know, uh, let me ask you a question at the beginning of this. Have you ever encountered a person who had some very exciting information and was told to keep it quiet, keep it secret, but uh, could not contain it? Uh, Let me uh, give you a little story about an incident in my own life. I'm holding uh, here a 1959 Rams yearbook. And uh, it's, uh, it's quite an antique, and most of the pictures on the inside are a lot of the football players have been autographed. Some of them wrote a little kind of a note to me. I was just a little kid in 1959, and the Rams were having an absolutely terrible year. And my mom and dad had an opportunity to meet with and converse with their star linebacker, uh, and that would be Les Richter. And uh, they said, you know, you've got a fan in our home. He's just a little guy, but he he follows you even though you hardly won a game this year. (laughs) And so uh, anyway, uh, Les took a yearbook and he had it signed by all of the players and so forth. And then along with a Ram helmet, uh, he said, listen, I want you to give Gary this stuff on his birthday. And it was coming up, and uh, they, they were great. Now, my sister was in. My little sister was in on the surprise. And she was so excited of what was going to come to me that she couldn't help but curb, she couldn't curb her enthusiasm. And so she said to me, Gary, you're really going to like your birthday gifts this year. And I can't tell you what they are, but... Uh, they're part of your favorite team, and one's a helmet, and one's a yearbook. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I thought about my little sister's excitement uh, uh, this past week, it uh, kind of reminded me of the gift that God gave the world in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for good reasons, Jesus came the first time uh, to earth in obscurity, not glory, in humility and not power. It's because he was going to be the suffering servant on this occasion and not a reigning king. Now, that will be reversed in the second coming, but the first coming was almost a secret. Now, God said, and bear with me, allow me a little latitude here for a moment, but, you know, God said, you know, I'm so excited. I've got to tell somebody about this. So he says, I, I think I'll, I'll send the angel Gabriel and visit Mary. So Mary is going to be the one from whom the Messiah was going to come. And that's what he told her. But that, that didn't satisfy him. You know, He says, you know, I, I not only want to tell Mary, but I think I'll send the angel Gabriel and tell Joseph as well. And so he says, hey, Joseph. You're the fiancé of Mary, and I just want you to know the Messiah is on his way, and he's going to come through your fiancé, Mary. Now Mary and Joseph both know. 
And this helps. But God still isn't satisfied, still kind of can't contain himself. You're allowing me some personification here, okay? Now, when the baby shows up in Bethlehem on that day, God says, you know, I think I'll also tell the shepherds. Now, you can picture heaven, you know, looking at God and says, you know, God, good. Go, go ahead and tell the shepherds, but keep it subtle. And so anyway, so God sends an angel and tells the shepherds, and he says, listen, I bring you good news of great joy because God is in fact going to come. It's a birthday surprise, and you don't know it yet, but the Messiah is coming. And God gets so excited that he sends all of the angels, and they light up a sky like a supernova. And, you know, the shepherds are blown away as they give glory to God. So today, what I want to do, I want to take a look at that first announcement when the angel of Gabriel was dispatched by God and uh, sent to Mary, that uh, wonderful fiancé of Joseph, just probably a teenager. So from a faraway place, this angelic visitor comes to this obscure girl in a very obscure village, nondescript village, and the angel makes an announcement that is going to change the world. And he says, the promised Messiah is on his way and he's going to come through a virgin. Going to come through you. Now, if miracles could be rated, this would be a perfect 10. You see, earlier in the, the chapter, Luke chapter 1, another miracle occurred. And this would be in the light of Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was an old uh, woman. She was elderly woman, I should call her. She was a relative of Mary. And uh, she was long past her ability to conceive and uh, bear a child. Her husband was Zacharias, but the angel Gabriel told them that they would bear a child in their old age. And God brought forth a, a son from the barrenness of Elizabeth's womb. And we know that person as John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was a relative of Mary. Now, in Mary's case, however, what God was doing is bringing in a child into the world uh, is through, without a father. In other words, uh, there's a conception without a human father. And so what God is doing here when he brings Jesus into the world is that he's upping the degree of difficulty, if you please, but only in our understanding because there are no degrees of difficulty when it comes to an omnipotent God. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture with a reductionist mentality today. In other words, if something can't be explained in human terms, then it can't happen. Uh, it's kind of a, a protected and riskless system. But if God is real, then we must affirm that God is able to do the impossible. And if God is able to do the impossible, uh, then we can expect anything. And he's no longer producing saviors uh, through virgin women anymore, but he continues to work in supernatural ways. And we understand that. If we've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, we realize that he turns people from habitual sin into victory in Jesus Christ. He mends relationships with absolutely no human explanation. 
He touches and he heals lives, rescuing them from years of pain. He breaks through calloused veneer of hardcore resistors and restores a tender spirit. See, there's a message in verse 37 of Luke chapter 2. It says, nothing is impossible with God. We pray for the sick and the depressed and the downtrodden simply because God works. And this is a praying church. Uh, Let me uh, walk through a little bit of the story here. Uh, And uh, just observe a few details of uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And he came to her in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And he wanted to inform her that God's redemptive plan in time and space is about to be set in motion here on earth. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah would enter the world through Mary. Let me read a few verses here. Verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Mary lived in Nazareth, and Nazareth is a city that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, I'm sure. And Nazareth was a a former military post. It was picturesque there, it was beautiful, but it was very insignificant. No one of distinction lived in Nazareth. And 30 years later, even after Jesus was born and lived 30 years, it was still kind of like the cultural armpit of the nation of Israel. On one occasion, Jesus' disciple Nathanael said with a slur, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's where Mary was. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, chapter 1. And in coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now each one of these descriptions would have struck Mary as being very remarkable. It was remarkable that her son would be great, she being of humble origins. It was remarkable that he would reign over the house of David. The house of David at that time had been cast down. It had fallen on very hard times. Uh, Foreigners were now ruling in the land. But the most remarkable of the statements made by Gabriel to Mary was that her child would be the son of the Most High. That means that he would not have a human father. His father would be God. Now, when we talk about Semitic thought here, the word son implies equality. In other words, the son will possess the same attributes as the Most High, meaning God the Father. 
So what it is is a statement of deity on the part of this child that was going to be born of Mary. Now notice Mary's response in verse 34. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Now mind you, Gabriel's been covering some ground. Mary, you're the favorite of God. His smile is upon you. You're going to be the birthing mother of the promised Messiah. You'll call him Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's son of the Most High. Gabriel has just been waxing on, and he's way down the track, and Mary is stuck at the gate. She says, how in the world is this going to happen? How am I going to get pregnant? I'm a virgin. And it reminds me, kind of what happened when I was a little first grader living in, in Whittier. And, uh, you know, just a little tyke. And our teacher of our first grade class announced uh, what we were going to do next. She's a beloved teacher. She says, now listen, class, we're going to all stand up and we're going to line up at the door and we're going to hold hands with one another And we're going to make our way down to the nurse's office. And we're all going to get a polio shot. Anybody remember the polio shots back in the 50s? Okay, a few of you are old enough to remember those things. But back at that time, uh, there was a nurse in every elementary school. And we were going to go down there and have our polio shot. She mentioned all of this wonderful vaccine that that scientists have have discovered and all the perils of polio, and we don't have to worry about that and so forth. And we sort of got what she was talking about. But what do you think was on the mind of every first grader there? It was the needle right here. It was the shot part. How long is the needle? How much is it going to hurt? Am I going to suffer the humiliation of crying before my classmates? All kinds of things went through my mind. And so, while Gabriel is announcing this marquee event in all of redemptive history, Mary is simply stuck back with the biological explanation. How in the world is this going to occur? And Gabriel answers Mary, and he says, It's not with the how, but with the who. The Spirit of God, Mary, will impregnate you. Now, it was a miracle of God, to be sure. And Mary's response in verse 38 was, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Now, in effect, what Mary was doing is she was saying, I am willing to be disgraced. I'm willing to deal with the shame of being pregnant without a husband. I'm willing to deal with the ridicule that will come my way when I tell my friends that I have my pregnancy is a result of the Spirit of God in my life, and I happen to be carrying the Messiah. She says, I'm willing to deal with the heartache of having my fiancé, Joseph, just walk right out of my life. You see, Mary didn't understand that Gabriel was going to pay a visit to Joseph after he talks to Mary. And uh, he was going to deliver Joseph that same news because Mary figured Joseph will be gone. You know, Mary was submitting to the fact that when she was talking to Gabriel that she was going to be a young single mother living on the lip of poverty for the very rest of her life. So in a real sense, 
Mary suffered for her Messiah before the Messiah suffered for her. And then she finally says, may it be done according to me, to me, excuse me, according to your word. Now let's look at a few implications there. I put them in your handout and uh, at least you'll be able to follow along with what I'm talking about. But there are three of them I want to put before you today. Uh, The first is this. Theologically, Jesus was born of a virgin and that links him with God. You see, the virgin birth, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection, and the physical return are all fundamental elements of Christian, of Orthodox Christianity. And the implications of the virgin birth, perfect life, substitutionary death, physical return, and uh, bodily resurrection and physical return, each of those implications are so far-reaching that to eliminate anyone of them would reduce Christianity to cult status. Now, the virgin birth reveals two essential attributes of Jesus Christ. The first, it points to his eternal nature. You see, God shows his eternal or his creative power in the union of a man and a woman. The Son of God, however, was not created uh, by such a union. Now, if you exist and you were not created, then you're eternal. And Jesus was incarnated. He who eternally existed now came in the flesh. And Jesus became what he was not, and that would be a man. But he did not cease to be what he was, and that would be God. In other words, he is the God-man. So it, it links him with the Lord. But secondly, his incarnation links him it points to his sinlessness. Just, it not only, excuse me, it not only it points to his eternal nature, but it points to his sinlessness. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they lost their moral innocence and assumed a sin nature and acquired a natural bent to do that which is evil. Now, that natural sin nature was passed to all of humanity save one, and that would be Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus were the product of a union between a man and a woman, then he would have possessed a sin nature as well. So the virgin birth guarantees that Jesus' humanity did not have a sin nature you know, and go to the cross as the perfect lamb. Now, here's the point. Well, wasn't Jesus tempted? And if he was tempted, how could, you know, it be a real temptation if he didn't have a sin nature? But here's the point. Jesus could be tempted externally, but he couldn't be tempted internally. We know he was tempted externally when he was out in the wilderness before, you know, after his baptism when Satan tempted him with all of the kingdoms of the world and turning the rocks into food and that kind of a thing. So Jesus could be tempted externally, but he couldn't be tempted internally because evil desire was not sourced inside of him. We can be tempted in all kinds of ways, but Jesus could only be tempted externally. 
And we know that Jesus was uh, able not to sin because he didn't. But Jesus, while he walked on this earth, was unable to sin. And the doctrine that says Jesus could not have sinned while he walked on this earth is what we call the impeccability of Christ. And the word impeccable simply means incapable of sinning. And the impeccability of Jesus Christ is guaranteed by his divine nature. Jesus was God, therefore he was holy, he was all-powerful, and he was immutable. And because he is holy, there is nothing within his own constitution that would draw him to sin. Because he was all-powerful, there was nothing that could overcome his holiness and cause him to sin. And because he was immutable, unchanging, his sinlessness is guaranteed for all of eternity. So that's the first implication. Now, the second implication is this. Historically, Jesus was born in time and space, and that links him with you and with me. Now, Luke is writing a a Greek audience here, and the Greeks believe that nothing important ever happened uh, in the flesh, never happened in in real life. It, It could only happen in time and space. It always occurred in the spiritual realm. But what Luke does is he shows them that this Savior comes and he walks on pavement. He converses with people. He eats real food. So when we talk about Jesus, he's not some mythical Greek god that never identified with earthlings. The Greeks felt that their gods were too great to stoop to that level. They were way beyond uh, relating to earthlings. But Luke says, hey, the true God is so great that he can stoop. And you see the logic of that. You see the power of the greater to enter into the lesser is a test of its greatness. For instance, you can play go fetch with your dog, but your dog cannot sit on a chair and talk theology with you. Uh, The humble understand those who are arrogant, but the arrogant do not understand those who are humble. Uh, Those who are generous understand those who are selfish, but those who are selfish do not understand those who are generous. Uh, Those who are wise understand those who are foolish, but those who are foolish do not understand those who are wise. So by definition, the greater is able to enter into the realm of the lesser, but by definition, the lesser is incapable of entering into the realm of the greater. So how great is God? The most high became the most low. See, we can only have a relationship with God if God stoops to our level. That's the only way, and he chose to do it. Now, let me offer the third implication. Personally, Jesus was born to be a savior, and that links him with us. He's linked with God, and now as a savior, he's linked with us. And the angels tell the shepherds out in the fields that today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And bound up in the word savior is an indication of our desperate state. 
You see, let me illustrate. This Christmas, uh, you're going to gather around a tree and open up gifts that have been given to you by those that love you. Now, let me pick on the men for a moment. It's always easier for me to do that than pick on the women, so I'm going to stay with the men on this occasion. But let's say, men, that when you, and even young men here, uh, that when you gather around the tree with your family, you've, only, you've got three gifts under the tree, okay? And the first gift is a, an exercise video on how to lose 15 pounds. <laughs> and the second gift that you open up happens to be a year's supply of Rogaine. And then the third gift that you open up uh, is a book on how to make a friend. Now, if you put all of those things together, if you ponder the significance of those gifts, you might conclude that those who love you think you're fat, bald, and obnoxious, okay? (laughs) Now, let me make the transfer to the spiritual realm. Because nobody loves you more than God. Nobody does. Uh, No one is more practical when it comes to giving you gifts than God is. And so God says your, your greatest need as a human being, as a man, if you please, is not a leaner body and thicker hair and a more pleasing personality. Your greater need, you're so desperate that Nothing less than God's greatness will deliver you from wrath because your greatest need happens to be a savior. And to believe somehow you can be saved by good works, by your lousy good works, simply mocks the gift of Christ that God has given you so that you can be saved. Uh, If you think you could be saved by good works, really it diminishes the greatness of God's gift to you. And it also sanitizes your own sinfulness, which you don't want. You know, uh, Romans 5.8 encapsulates the Christmas message. It says, but God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, as human beings, we are the Chernobyl of the created order. You know, sin has melted down our own hearts, and all we can do is isolate it, bury it, and keep the contamination away. Uh, But at just the right time, the Most High became the Most Low, and he gave his life, and he completed the purchase for our salvation. You know, all of us have built-in desires. We want to be loved. We want to be loved forever, and we want to be loved whatever. And our love songs today describe the desires of our heart in this way. We look for it in a marriage. We look for it in a friendship. But no single individual can deliver what you need and what I need, save one. God loves us forever. God loves us, whatever, and he proved the radical nature of that love by promising a salvation and then delivering it. And it began with the incarnation when Jesus became a man and died on the cross for our sins. 
It continues through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who works in us in such a way that we can actually live for his glory. And it will be consummated at his physical return when we're perfected in glory. That's what God has done for us. That's what the Christmas season is all about. It was just the first step to ultimately living that perfect life that we could not live during those years that he was uh, on earth and then going to the cross and dying for our sin as the innocent lamb and then promising to come back and gather his people so that they could be with him forever and ever and ever. It's the, it's the Christmas story followed by the Easter story and, all, and followed by eternity future that we have to look forward to. You know, today, as we uh, uh, close off our service today, we, we want to remember that part of his life at the beginning of what he came to do. He came to die so that our sins through his death might be forgiven. And he's given us a reminder of that. And every time we, we break the bread and take that bread, we're reminded of his body uh, given in death for us. Every time we drink that cup, uh, it reminds us of the precious, innocent blood that was shed for us. And it was all designed to say, listen, you have a future. You don't have to worry about death in this particular life. No one wants to die, but we don't have to look forward to that with dread because we know that something's better for us on the other side. And so every time we gather at this table, it's a solemn table because it reflects the death of Jesus Christ, but it's also one that we look forward to and say, my goodness, what a great God. When Gabriel came and spoke to Mary, he talked about the great God that ultimately died for us and says, you've got a ticket to heaven because you happen to be linked with me. And I just want you to remember it regularly. Just, just go ahead and celebrate that, that communion service regularly. And each time you do it, just spend some time thanking me for dying on the cross for you and for my promise to come back and bring you to glory. You don't have to worry about anything else other than that. He just, he just wants our worship. Even during this, this Advent season, when we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, but we can leap forward for just a moment here and think about what his birth was all about and what he came to do so that we can, in fact, fellowship with God in all of eternity future. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here at this particular time. The, the elements will be passed out and I would ask you to hold each one of them if you could. And I'll come back up here when they're passed out and we'll take them together. <laughs>